The great economist John Maynard Keynes once wrote of the foolish things a man thinking alone can come temporarily to believe. Fortunately, I did not have to think alone. And neither do we. Welcome to Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast, where all other things are never equal. Welcome to a new episode of Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast. Your host today is Reinhard Schumacher, and my guest for this episode is Dennis Rasmussen. Dennis is a professor of political science at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University. His research is mostly in the history of political thought, and one of his major research areas is the Scottish Enlightenment. His most recent book, published by Princeton University Press, is titled The Infidel and the Professor, David Hume, Adam Smith, and the Friendship that Shaped Modern Thought. This book will be the main focus for our discussion today. Welcome to Ceteris Never Paribus, Dennis. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I suppose most of our listeners will at least be somewhat familiar with David Hume and even more so with Adam Smith, the two giants of Scottish Enlightenment. However, before we go into the details of their lives, it might still be useful to briefly reflect on the Scottish Enlightenment more generally. So my first question is, what were the main characteristics of the Scottish Enlightenment and what distinguishes it from other forms of Enlightenment movements? Sure. So the, the Scottish Enlightenment is the kind of flowering of, of thought, especially philosophical thought, in the mid-18th century in Scotland, which in historical context is a really striking thing insofar as Scotland had long been regarded and almost regarded itself as a kind of poor backward outpost on the fringe, in Europe, fringe of Europe. Um, but by the middle of the 18th century, there's this enormous uh, cultural boom along with an economic boom where, uh, as you say, Adam Smith and David Hume are surely the leading thinkers of the Scottish Enlightenment, but there are all kinds of other important thinkers, both philosophers, you get people like Thomas Reed, Adam Ferguson, Francis Hutcheson, uh, Lord Kames. Uh, there are impressive artists that emerge around this time, the painter Alan Ramsey, the playwright John Holm, among others, Hume, I guess it's pronounced. More practical, there's the uh, James Hutton is a good friend of Smith's and is in some ways the founder of modern geology. There's John Watt, or uh, sorry, Robert Watt of, of uh, kind of steam engine fame. James Watt, sorry, I'm getting the name wrong here. James Watt of steam engine fame. Um, so there, there, there's this you know, flowering of, of kind of cultural, intellectual um, achievement. This is, the, the Scottish Enlightenment is often depicted as um, very different than the, the French Enlightenment, Enlightenment in particular. And sort of socially or sociologically, I think there's something to this insofar as the, the members of the Scottish Enlightenment were for the most part um, kind of establishment figures. They were figures in the universities or even in the church, the Kirk, the, in the law. Um, whereas the leading intellectuals in France were often kind of more the, the disaffected from, from the social elite, the, the aristocracy of, of their time. Um, that said, I don't know that the thought is as different. The, the Scottish Enlightenment and the French Enlightenment's thought is as um, starkly opposed as it's often depicted. So this has been common since the time of Edmund Burke to say, well, the, the French Enlightenment were a bunch of rationalist, radical, 
um, universalist revolutionaries, whereas the Scottish Enlightenment was good, moderate, sensible, pragmatic, focused more on the sentiments than on reason. Um, the I think leading exponent of this in recent years is Gertrude Himmelfarb in her book, The Roads to Modernity. I guess there's something to this, but I think that's an overstatement insofar as I'd say First of all, the leading French thinkers, I don't think were all that rationalist or revolutionary. You think about Montesquieu or Voltaire, Diderot, d'Alembert, Condorcet. I don't, I don't think these figures are quite as radical as, you know, some of the maybe lesser known thinkers, Dolbach, Helvetius, Lemaitre, some of them are pretty radical, but the, the leading thinkers aren't. And I also think the Scots have a, a radical edge of their own. The, so if you think of Hume's dialogues concerning natural religion, there aren't that many more books in an 18th century context that are more radical than that. I think Smith has his radical side. He himself proclaimed the wealth of nations to be a very violent attack on the whole commercial system of Great Britain. So um, I, I don't I don't share the, the very common view that the Scottish Enlightenment is diametrically opposed to the French. I think that it uh, is more similar to it than is often thought. But um, certainly it is an amazing historical episode. Um, yeah. Yeah, and just maybe to add a few things there, um, I think the French Enlightenment is often portrayed as being much more anti-religious. And the Scottish Enlightenment, with the exception of Hume, who we talk about, are rather moderate. They don't um, oppose the church that explicitly. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, again, for the French, I don't think Montesquieu and Voltaire might be anti-clerical, anti-church, but I don't think are anti-religious. I don't. I think Voltaire, especially, is a sincere, even ardent deist. But you're right that uh, for the most part, the the Scots, um, other than Hume and I, I would say Smith, not everybody would say Smith um, is an exception here. That they are, you know, many of them are leading figures in the Kirk. Hugh Blair was the at St Giles Cathedral, the biggest, most important cathedral in in Scotland. Um, so. Certainly the overall thrust of the Scottish Enlightenment is less anti-clerical, anti-religious than, than the Scots. Now, my two thinkers are, I mean, Hume is almost, you know, unquestionably a religious skeptic. And I argue that, that Smith is closer to Hume in this regard than is often thought. I think that is and has been a controversial reading among Smith scholars, but that's, that's my case. And then there might also be the case that there was a kind of a political and social vacuum in Scotland at the time, right? There was... You had Edinburgh at the capital, but it was basically abandoned by, by the mid-18th century in the early 17th century, I think 1603, when the Union of the Crown took place, the court and its entourage went to London, and with the Union with England in 1707, the politicians and the gentry mostly followed. So you had this political and social vacuum in, in the capital, so the intellectuals could just take over and there were not so many people who would oppose them and then of course the church also moderated in the late 17th century i think it was in many cases the most backward one in britain because there was the i think in 1697 if i'm not mistaken was the last person executed for blasphemy right was the last person in in, in the whole of um, britain to be executed for blasphemy and this was just a few decades before david hume entered this, the stage, right? So the church also seemed to have moderated at the time. Yes, absolutely. Now, I mean, you're definitely right about the, the sort of vacuum in Edinburgh after, in the wake of the Union, especially, right? There's no more separate Scottish Parliament. The Scots did 
retained good control. Their legal system remained largely separate from Britain's. Their church did, right? There's still the Presbyterian Church. It's still the established church in Scotland, not the Anglican Church. The Scottish educational system is very different, and Smith at least thought much, much better than the Oxford-Cambridge uh, system. So, you know, there's still there's still some power, some authority in Edinburgh. It's not it's not like having your own Scottish Parliament, I suppose. But right, so I I think the the Scots benefited from the union at least by this point. It took a couple decades for the the promised um, economic boom to come, but the the Scots benefited from the. Um, kind of being under the wing of this big, powerful nation, um, and yet still got to be kind of on their own in a lot of realms, again, the kind of legal, religious, educational realms um, to to forge their own path. So I think they benefited from both sides of that uh, that relationship, much the way Smith says in The Wealth of Nations, the American colonies did the, up until at least the seven, 1760s. They benefited from being sort of under the wing of Britain, but being allowed to do their own thing across the ocean. And Scotland was in some respects so much closer in a similar similar situation. And one of the results, of course, and we will talk about this, I guess, is that there was space for intellectual clubs, intellectual gatherings, Basically, there were no authorities who tried to block it or they, they could just meet and have their um, discussions unrestricted, which was not the case in some other European countries at the same time. And this was probably because there was kind of this vacuum that we discussed. But now let's um, come to your book. And of course, there has been a vast amount of literature on human Smiths. So why did you decide to write another book about them? Is there a story that hasn't been told that you're telling or did you have access to new sources or was it some other motive? Well, I guess you're absolutely right that there's a huge literature on Hume and a huge literature on Smith. There hasn't been as huge of a literature as you might think on the two of them, given the overlaps in their thought and their close personal friendship. So this is really the first book on the two of them together. There have been lots of articles about Human Smith on a particular topic. So Human Smith on sympathy, Human Smith on justice, et cetera, et cetera. But there had been really no attempt to do a comprehensive look at the two of them. So part of the motive was just I was very interested in the two of them and I was interested in their relationship and the, the relationship between their thought. Um, I think the the fact that they were best friends, I mean, they were for most of their adult lives, for over 25 years, they were each other's closest friend. And that their thought has so many dif in overlaps and divergences both. I, I thought there was lots of room to, to explore both those things and, and hopefully to make it an interesting story by, by keeping the, the personal relationship front and center, but then also um, taking the time to look at where um, Smith is responding to Hume and, and kind of diverging from Hume, uh, refining Hume's views and, and the like. So, yeah, I, I, I hope that there's something new in here. I, I wrote it, I guess, primarily trying to make it a good, interesting story so that it would be generally accessible and read by more than just a handful of human Smith scholars. I hope, I think there's things in there for human Smith scholars as well, things that might not have come out without a more comprehensive look at the two of them. But yeah, so that was my, my motivation. Yeah, just as an information for listeners, it is a very entertaining book and a not too too technical, too academic, so it's it might be even a good bedside read. Thanks. And it's, of course, in this case, I find it forgivable that you use endnotes and not footnotes, which I usually be annoyed by. Um, so let's start with David Hume, who was 12 years older than Smith. He was born in 
1711 in Edinburgh, and he started publishing at a very uh, at a quite young age before he met or encountered Smith. So, can you tell us a bit about Hume, where he came from, maybe his early influences? Sure. So, as you say, he was born in 1711. He his father died when he was quite young. I can't remember exactly two or three. Um, so he was raised mostly by his mother. He also had a brother and sister. His mother was quite pious, and there's evidence to suggest that Hume himself was quite pious, or uh, at least had a time when he was pious as a, a youth. It was really still fairly early. I think he's still in his teen years by the time he kind of throws that to the side. He he tells us quite explicitly that um, it, it was um, early reading of Locke and Clark and some others that um, he reacted against their their cases for a sort of theistic, rational, enlightenment-type God and, and became a religious skeptic, which is, as you suggested a few minutes ago, I think quite unusual in the Scotland of his time. Um, some of that skepticism comes out in his first book, The Treatise of Human Nature, which was published in 1739-1740, which m most philosophers, I think, think take still to be his most important book, the book that they spend the most time on, especially book one of the of the treatise. Hume himself later in life came to, if not disavow, at least to express regret at um, the form of the treatise. And he preferred his later works to the treatise. But the, again, this is still the work that, that philosophers spend the most time on. Um, soon after that, he published a number of essays Some Well, he published an inquiry concerning human understanding, which is a sort of recasting of the first book of the treatise, an inquiry concerning the principles of morals, which is a sort of recasting of the third book of the treatise, um, as well as a number of essays. And he would continue to write essays on all kinds of topics throughout the, the rest of his life. So as you say, he started publishing pretty early it, it, while still in his 20s and, and um, wrote, finished much of his writing, frankly, before he even met Smith uh, for the first time. Okay, then let's briefly introduce the other protagonist, Adam Smith, who was born, as we said, 12 years later um, in Kirkcaldy, on the other side of the um, first or fourth. Can you tell us briefly about his youth and where he came from or his early influences? Sure. So he, too, uh, grew up fatherless. His father died before he was even born. So he was raised by his mother. He was an only child. I think he had a, a, a step-sibling, but um, he, he was basically raised as an only child. He was very close to his mother for, for the rest of his life. She too was a deeply pious Presbyterian, much like Hume's mother was. Smith had excellent schooling. He went to, there was an excellent Berg school in Kirkcaldy that, that he went to. He then went to the University of Glasgow at age 14, where he studied with Francis Hutchison, who would be another big influence on him, um, and then spent, I think it was six years at Oxford on a kind of fellowship. It was known as a Snell exhibitioner. Um, and it was at Oxford that he first encountered Hume, and or Hume's thought, didn't encounter Hume in person, but encountered Hume's thought. So there's a, a reasonably famous story that Smith's orthodox dons at his at Balliol College, his college at Oxford, came into his room one day and found him to their horror, found him poring over Hume's treatise of human nature and, you know, took the book away and reprimanded him for reading such a heretical book. It's, you know, it, it's almost too good to be true for, for a book like mine that, that as a youth, you know, Smith is caught and punished for reading this book. And then, of course, this has to, you know, it can't help but intrigue him, right? Pique his interest still further in Hume and Hume's thought. There's no hard evidence that that's true, but it's hard to imagine a teenager not ha having that reaction. 
So, yeah, so after his time in Oxford, he went back to Edinburgh, gave some public lectures in the city. And I conjecture there's not hard hard evidence, but there's some reasonable reason to believe that this is when he first met Hume is when he's lecturing, giving public lectures in Edinburgh. When Hume returns from he he spends uh, some time on the continent, Hume does. And when he returns to Edinburgh, he almost certainly, I think, goes to see some of Smith's lectures. And this would be in the fall, the autumn of 1749, when they first meet. Maybe just a brief aside. Um, of course, it's hard to figure out such details, especially since Smith famously burned most of his works in correspondence shortly before his death. And I think Hume also destroyed quite a bit of his correspondence. So it's, it's hard to figure out an exact date when they met, I guess, as well as many other details in their lives. Yes. So this was one of the challenges with the book is that neither one were good correspondents. I think Smith found the physical act of writing painful. I don't know. He had some issue with his hand where he found writing physically painful. And so he was a terrible correspondent. And what little he did, few letters he did write were mostly burned. He burned most of his papers before he died. Hume isn't quite as bad on this score as Smith. There are a few volumes of correspondence from him, but it's not like, you know, for Voltaire, Rousseau, or some others, we have dozens and dozens of volumes of correspondence, and there's nothing like that with the two of them. So there are only 56 surviving letters between them. I believe it's 41, if I'm remembering right, it's 41 from Hume to Smith and 15 from Smith to Hume. But anyway, it's not a whole lot to go on, and we don't have a whole lot of other papers. So I tried to tell the fullest story I could based on the evidence I could find. So these letters, Obviously, they're published in unpublished writings, whatever survive. I tried to find, you know, as many other people writing letters about the two of them or telling stories about the two of them, contemporaneous, near near contemporaneous sources. So I included everything I can find. I, I of course, can't say definitively that there's nothing else out there, that there's no other um, no other comments out there about the, the two of them from, from the 18th century. But I tried my best and I included everything I found. Um, so, was, yeah, so a lot of the times I'm, extrapolating from meager evidence. I try not to do too much of that. And, and this is, you know, historians are always tempted when sources are thin to say, well, you must have thought this or the Smith, you know, surely did that. And I try not to do too much of that, but I do have to rely, kind of push hard on the few pieces of evidence um, that we do have. I'll also say uh, on the question of Smith encountering Hume at Oxford, right? So the, the it's kind of a Second and third hand, the story about him being caught reading the treaties. We know for sure, though, that he read the treaties because we have a essay that he never published, but that he allowed to survive the flames after his death. Um, scholars usually call it the history of astronomy. Smith's own name for it was the principles which lead and direct philosophic inquiries. And, um, and here he makes really unambiguous references to Hume. He uses titles from Hume's uh, chapter titles from the, the Treatise of Human Nature. So it's really, there's no question that he encountered Hume's thought at, at this time. The question is just whether the story is true that he got caught and punished for, for having done so. So let's talk a bit of, uh, of how they influenced each other intellectually. I think today, at least this is my impression, Hume and Smith are often mentioned in the same breath, meaning that they are often being portrayed as having similar ideas or even the same ideas and theories. And then, of course, economists usually stress this and philosophers stress more Hume. Um, you write, however, that throughout his work, this is a quote from your book, Smith does not simply adopt Hume's views, but rather builds on them. End of quote. 
that entails of course that they also differed in quite some respects from each other and this is a view that i would of course ascribe to and i've published a bit myself on their differences but can you describe how smith builds on hume in his theory of moral sentiments which was Smith's first book what are the main similarities and also the main differences between the, the two thinkers sure so let me first say that in terms of the influence it's almost entirely one direction. That is to say, the influence is almost entirely Hume on Smith rather than Smith on Hume, or at least in their published works. Because as I said, Hume had published almost all of his works, all but the last few uh, volumes of his History of Britain before History of England, but before Smith even started to publish his work. So the, the kind of direction of influence is, is mostly in this one way. I think there's something to both sides. So I do think that it's not entirely wrong to see, to group Hume and Smith together. I do think they're they're broadly similar in lots of important respects, maybe the most important respects. But um, I also think it's true that the, that makes the, inter the the divergences between them all the more interesting, where Smith agrees on all the broad strokes with Hume, but says, no, I don't think you've got this part quite right. I don't think you've got that part quite right. So in terms of the, um, the theory of moral sentiments, I think the biggest similarities are the, the obvious ones, which is that they both take a broadly empirical view of the subject, which is to say they think morality comes not from God or from something written in the fabric of the cosmos, capital N, nature, capital R, reason, but rather from us, from, from human beings themselves. They say, moreover, that it comes not from human reason, but from humans sentiments, right? The, 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 they're both moral sentimentalists. And finally, I think that the last big similarity, and but these are all very important things, the last big similarity is that they both say that morality comes not just from any sentiments, but from the sentiments that we feel when we're in the proper position. So this is, Hume often calls it the general point of view or the common point of view. Smith calls it the impartial spectator. There may be some slight differences between them, but the, the purpose is the same, to get an impartial um, observer and whatever their sentiments are kind of dictates what morality is. So again, I think the broadest strokes, they're, they're very much on the same page. But Smith, as you suggested, takes Hume's starting point and, and modifies it in a variety of ways. In some ways, I think the, the key modification has to do with the way they both conceive of sympathy. So sympathy is a key feature in both of their uh, moral theories. It's what the faculty of the human mind that allows us to transcend merely selfish concerns and to, to, to think morally. Um, for Hume, this is a um, straightforward, um, well, maybe straightforward is too, too strong, but it's simple, much, much simpler mechanism than, than Smith's conception of sympathy. So the way Hume describes it is, I see someone else's emotions and I feel more or less that same emotion myself if I, if I try to. So I see someone smiling and it makes me happy. I see someone sad and it makes me sad. And he, he several times re refers to it sympathy as almost an emotional contagion that you just catch other people's feelings to more or lesser degrees, depending on all kinds of factors. But Smith says, and this is the, the point of the very first chapter of the theory of moral sentiments, is to try to correct Hume on this score. He doesn't bring up Hume by name, but it's very clear that he's, he's referring to Hume and, and trying to show why Hume's view needs to be modified. He says that sympathy requires a much more fuller kind of imaginative projection 
into the position of somebody else. So that just seeing some the expression of somebody else's emotions usually isn't enough to get you to feel that emotion yourself. And he says, this is most obvious for what he calls the unsocial passions. So you think of anger, right? You see someone else who's angry, that doesn't make you angry yourself. Maybe if you learn what made that person angry, then you'd become angry. But Smith says you need to imaginatively project yourself into their situation to know the full context before you can fully sympathize. And so he, he understands this differently and this allows him to build his moral theory in a different way where Hume's moral theory comes mostly from a sort of external observer's point of view where I see other people's actions, character traits, and through sympathy, I, I deem them either useful or agreeable to myself or to others, and I form my judgment accordingly. Whereas Smith says, well, we sympathize with each actor in a given situation, both those who are acting and acted upon. And so this allows for a variety, so he calls them propriety and merit, that's in part one, and then part two of the theory of moral sentiments, part one is on propriety, part two is on merit. Um, one has more to do with the sentiments that motivate a given action, and the latter, that merit is on the consequences or effects or intended consequences or effects of that action. So morality ends up being a more complicated thing for Smith than it is for Hume, um, in part because his notion of sympathy is more complicated. And I myself see it as an improvement on Hume. I think that he does capture some things about human interaction that are, are missing from Hume's more simple account. But there are a variety of other differences that we can go into if you want, but I'd say that's in some ways the central one, the central way that Smith modifies Hume. I, I agree with that, of course, and I always find it funny because what you said is that both Smith and Hume are basically saying humans are motivated by sentiments rather than reason or rational thinking, and yet in economics at least, both are, and especially Smith is seen as the father of rational economics thing right. but it's i mean it's a difference if you read humans myth you understand or they they give you a way to understand that humans are much more driven by sentiments and that you have to take them into account well right and it's so you're right that it, this runs up against the caricature that you sometimes get in smith uh, uh, smith especially among economists it also runs up against the caricature of the enlightenment that you mm -hmm. get in philosophy right that is the age of reason that reason predominates and the whole one of the biggest points of both human smith is that reason doesn't predominate it's the sentiments that predominate so it, yeah it is a striking um striking thing. I mean, you should be able to get it from the title of his book, right? The theory of moral sentiments is, is pretty, pretty front and center. And yet it still doesn't seem to, to sink in. Um, well, in your book, you discuss, you discuss four main differences between Smith and Hume. And I actually want to stick with it. We, we talked about sympathy. Another difference you argue is in their view on how they perceive utility. Can you briefly tell us what you mean by that? Sure. So, Smith essentially argues that Hume places too great an emphasis on utility. So that Hume says that we sympathize with other people we, when we observe other actions, character traits. One of the key reasons we would sympathize and approve of a character trait is if it's useful. If it's useful to the person who exhibits that character trait or if it's useful to society at large. And Smith says, well, no, I, th that's part of it, but really that comes almost as an afterthought. That's not the primary reason why we approve of character traits. We mostly 
approve of them because we approve of them. I mean, it, it sounds almost uh, circular, redundant, but he says, you know, we have this sense of propriety, we observe an action and, and we approve of it. And, you know, maybe if somebody says, well, why do you approve of this this action? And you, you cast about, he says, and, and you come up with utility as an explanation. But that's not the first, the primary reason why we approve of things. We just have this sense of propriety that comes before any calculations of utility. Um, now on this, you know, I think, I mean, this is odd. It, it's interesting that Smith, I think, oversimplifies Hume. Hume says that we approve of not just the useful, but also the agreeable. What's useful to myself and others, what's agreeable to myself and others. And Smith kind of leaves that part out of, of Hume's thought in a way that, frankly, many later interpreters have too. He's often seen as a moral utilitarian when I don't, that's not a correct reading, I don't think. Um, it's fascinating, though, that Smith would get his best friend's thought wrong, <laughs> um, that why Hume didn't correct him or why, why Smith persists in, in this oversimplification. And I don't know, I, it might be a sign that Smith kind of wanted to have the theory of moral sentiments be his own book and, and publish it without, uh, presumably without Hume having read it first. I, I assume Hume would have corrected the oversimplification if he had read it. I don't know. That, I, I don't know what to make of that. But he does seem to oversimplify Hume's views in, in that regard. There's no um, evidence that Hume ever read the theory of moral sentiments before it was published. No. So we have this very, very charming letter that he writes to Smith right after it's published um, that everybody should go read if they haven't read it. This is a 1759 um, letter from Hume to Smith. I, I call it maybe the most charming letter in the entire history of philosophy. The, and he then wrote a review, an anonymous review of the book in the critical review. So he certainly engages with it the minute it comes out. But the, even what he says in the letter seems to suggest that he's kind of coming to it for the first time. It doesn't seem that he read it before publication, which is, uh, yeah, curious. Okay, returning to the, the differences. So we had sympathy and utility now, and then there's a third major difference that you list, and this is um, their differences in the view of the foundation of justice. What were their differences here? Right, so justice is almost a subset of utility in, in, a, in a certain respect, insofar as Smith's main criticism is that justice comes not from reflections on utility, but from the sentiment of resentment. Backing up a minute, they both use the term justice in a very, um, what I think we might see as narrow sense. So we tend to, in the wake of John Rawls and, and many others, we tend to think of justice as kind of a broad broad concept, mostly equivalent to fairness or desert of some kind. Hume and Smith both use justice to basically mean refraining from harming the life, liberty, or property of others. So it's a very kind of narrow understanding of what justice entails. And Hume says that our sense of justice comes entirely from reflection on its utility. So many virtues are either useful or agreeable or some mixture of the two. He makes the case that justice is one of the virtues that comes entirely from utility or from reflection on utility. This is why he notoriously dubs it an artificial virtue in A Treatise of Human Nature. Smith says that virtue, that the virtue of justice comes not from utility, from but from resentment, which is to say, when we see some act of injustice, let's say, you know, a cold-blooded murder, we don't want to punish the murderer primarily because we think, well, this will be useful for society in the long run, that, that you know, it will discourage others from doing so. And, and you know, you, we engage in some kind of calculation, cost-benefit analysis. 
He says, no, we just resent it. We resent the murder. We, we sympathize with the victim and the victim's family and so on, and we resent the murder. And, and this is what leads to our, our sense of justice and injustice. And so he says, well, well justice has a similar content to what, um, what Hume says it does. It has a different foundation or different basis in Smith. The last difference you mentioned is religion. And here, of course, we already said that Hume was known as an infidel and his views are very clear while Smith's views on religion are rather unclear and there has actually been a lot of scholarship or a lot of um, texts written about this. Some see Smith as a Christian, others as a deist, others as an agnostic, others as an atheist. So there's um, quite a big discussion. Um, this is the last uh, difference that you make out. So what are your views on, on this topic, religion? Yes. Yeah, so as you say, this is a thorny one and, and controversial among Smith scholars. So I, I say in the book, you know, if you have to pin a label on Smith, the label I would pin on him is that he's a skeptical deist, which is to say not an outright skeptic like Hume. He probably, I think, did believe in some kind of distant higher power, maybe even a benevolent higher power. But he's skeptical of most forms of religious belief, religious devotion. I, I could say quite a lot about this, but I, I think Smith, the, the, in terms of the, the moral theory, the impact on his book, Smith does accord a more useful or, or kind of favorable role to religion in his moral theory than Hume does. So Hume, of course, formulates a moral theory with basically no mention of religion. The, the closest he comes is when he's denouncing what religion does to our natural sentiments, that it makes us embrace the monkish virtues of celibacy and fasting and self-denial and the like, which he thinks is a perversion of morality. Smith thinks that morality doesn't come from religion, is not the word or will of God that tells us what's right and wrong. Again, it's the sentiments of an impartial spectator that tell us that. But he does think that religion can, or at least some kinds of religion, can be useful in backing up the morality that arises in this natural, spontaneous way. So I, I say at one point in the book, one of the, the lines I was more, more proud of, I, I say that for Smith, religion isn't the foundation of morality. It's not even a pillar. It's rather a buttress. It supports it from the outside. It gives people an additional reason to act morally if they think that the uh, moral rules come from God, that it makes us regard them as more sacred. So that's, I think, There's a great deal that could be said about Smith and religion more generally, but in terms of the difference with Hume with regard to their moral theories, I'd say that would be the main difference. You already said that the intellectual influence, at least on the published work, was mainly one way, and and Hume didn't publish another treatise or or book after the theory of moral sentiments. I mean, he wrote a six-volume um, history of England, but this is not a work of moral philosophy. Um, but he did revise and actually add to his essays. They are now published as essays, moral, political, and literary. And are there no traces that he responds to Smith in any way or that he might have been influenced in any way by, by Smith, by maybe by private discussions, by Smith's um, publications, or even the lectures that he might have heard by Smith? Um, I don't think so. So most of his essays were written prior. I think there's uh, the origin of government. There's maybe a couple or a handful that were written after um, after the theory of moral sentiments. But really, almost everything except I believe it's the last four volumes of the history of England were were written written before Smith. So there, you know, there, we can conjecture about uh, whether their private conversations influenced 
any of Hume's views. I think one of the more interesting conjectures, and I don't even really conjecture this in the book, but I would say that Hume's book, The Natural History of Religion, echoes to an almost eerie degree Smith's work that's, again, often referred to as the history of astronomy that he called the principles which lead in direct philosophical inquiries. Smith, there's a section of that work called The Origin of Philosophy, where Smith conjectures about how religion first arose and kind of what are the features of human nature and what would, what would have prompted people to come up with the idea of religion, come up with the idea of the gods. And he says, well, comets and eclipses, and they would be scared. And so they would say that there's some, you know, invisible power out there that's, that's doing these things. And he, he traces a story about how polytheism would have uh, evolved into monotheism and the like. And it's really almost eerie the degree to which this anticipates um, Hume's natural history of religion. So Smith wrote this um, quite early on when he was at Oxford. The natural history of religion wasn't published till 1757. So this is, you know, depends on when exactly Smith wrote it, but, you know, maybe eight years or a decade later. Smith's work, we don't know that Hume saw this work of Smith's until Smith was dead or near death. Um, so in his, as, I think it was in 1773 when Smith was asking Hume to be his literary executor, uh, thinking that he, you know, if he, if he was going to London to publish The Wealth of Nations and he thought, well, if I don't make it back, I need someone to take care of my papers. And in this letter, he tells Hume about this work. Almost, it sounds as if Hume had never heard of it or read it before. So there's no, certainly no evidence that he, that Hume read this work of Smith's, but who knows, right? That maybe they just discussed it and Smith kind of gave him some of the ideas um, in conversation without letting him read the piece and Hume worked that into the natural history of religion. There, there's just no way to know that's true, but that's, I think, the most likely kind of instance of influence from, in, in the Smith to Hume direction. Okay, but Adam Smith was to write another book, of course, in 1776, The Wealth of Nations was published. Can there be seen similar influences of Hume in this book, as in the theory of moral sentiments? So I think the influence of Hume, I mean, it's definitely there. He cites Hume by name. He quotes almost four paragraphs, I think it is, from the, the history of England. There's no question there's some influence there. I don't think it's quite as pervasive in the, the Wealth of Nations as in the Theory of Moral Sentiments. In the Theory of Moral Sentiments, there's hardly a chapter where you can't trace some kind of influence of Hume. And there's lots of, of chapters that are just, without using Hume's name, devoted explicitly to modifying Hume's views. In the Wealth of Nations, there's, you know, he, Smith just goes into a lot more detail about political economy than, than Hume ever did. I do think there are the, there's some broad influence that you can see. I mean, Hume is one of the first important thinkers to argue for free trade, and he does this well before the wealth of nations. So the, the, his, um, what were known as the political discourses, which were incorporated into his, his broader essays, moral, political, literary, a number of them of the balance of trade is a key one. Um, a later, I think it's a slightly later one is of the jealousy of trade. I believe that's 1758, But in any case, this is decades before the wealth of nations that Hume is making um, in much briefer space, but an argument in favor of free trade. So I think there are some broad intellectual influences, even if it's not, even if you can't take, you know, every passage of the wealth of nations and say, aha, here's where he's responding to, to Hume on this point. There, there's lots of things in the wealth of nations that are just not even hinted at in Hume's work, the division of labor being a key one. There's maybe one Uh, offhand mention of what Hume calls the partition of employments in the treatise of human nature, but he places nowhere near 
the emphasis on the division of labor that Smith ends up doing. There's obvious all kinds of, of stuff about taxation. And so, right, there's all kinds of things in the wealth of nations that find no echo, no predecessor in Hume. I do think their, their sensibilities are broadly similar. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I agree that in the wealth of nations you see possibly other authors had more influence on this work. They also never wrote something together, but at the end of Hume's life, and he died shortly after the publication of The Wealth of Nations in 1776, this is also the year that Hume died, he wrote a short autobiography, My Own Life, and Smith was allowed to amend it um, to include Hume's last days because they were a public sensation. and. You also find this work so important that you actually reprint this My Own Life and Smith's editions as an appendix to your in your book. Um, and this autobiography and especially Smith's edition brought Smith some troubles. Can you briefly describe what was going on there and why Hume's death was such a public event? Sure. So Hume's death was such a public event because of his religious skepticism. So basically, everybody wanted to know, how is this religious skeptic? How is this infidel going to face his end? Is he going to die in a state of distress and agony? Is he going to kind of recant or repent, uh, give up his skepticism? You know, how could you die without believing in an afterlife? How could you, you, you face up to this? And so everybody wanted to know how Hume would face his end. There's all kinds of public speculation about this. The, the journals say that, you know, James Boswell famously wants to go talk to Hume. Everybody's curious about this event. And Hume knows this. Hume well knows that people are curious. So he writes a couple months before he died, when he, it was fairly clear that he was, he was going to die soon. He writes this very brief autobiography called My Own Life. It's 10, 12 pages long in the modern edition. It's mostly just a summary of um, not even his writings, but of the the kind of public reception of his writings. But it also makes very clear, especially toward the end of the piece, that he's dying without regrets, without uh, changing his mind, changing his views. And, you know, he's trying to show that he's dying as he thinks a philosopher should die, which is without undue hopes and fears. And Smith knows this too, right? Smith well knows that people are fascinated by this death. And he wants to, he's Hume's best friend. He wants to kind of support Hume's endeavor to, to, to paint himself in the, the right light here. And so he says, well, how about I add to this? I'll, I'll supplement the your autobiography. I'll supplement your work called My Own Life with a letter that, that will tell the story going up to the very end. So it uh, can tell people exactly how you did die. So this would be the sort of authorized version of the story from his best friend that, that Hume okayed in advance. And this letter I find to be very moving um, moving letter, I'll say it's worth noting, this is only the third thing. This is the only other thing that Smith published under his name during his lifetime. So we have three things. There are a variety of student lectures that people are found after his death, his correspondence, of course, he would have never wanted published, some essays that he allowed to survive the flames. But during his lifetime, he published three things under his name, namely the theory of moral sentiments, the wealth of nations, and this letter. If I can put in a plug, I, I did a year or two ago, so after the this book, after The Infidel and the Professor, I did, wrote up an um, annotated version of the this this letter. It's called The Letter of Strand on, on Hume's death and um, the, a variety of reactions to it that was published by Lexington Books under the title Adam Smith and the Death of David Hume. Um, so I, I spent more time on this work even after writing The Infidel and the Professor. I, I find it to be a fascinating, moving work, but the key 
for, for telling the story that you're asking about, the key is that Hume, or, sorry, Smith depicts Hume's death as essentially cheerful, courageous, but irreligious. He makes no mention of God or the afterlife or any anything of the sort. And he includes the letter by praising uh, Hume to the skies, the, the very last line of the this letter, this published open letter, was the most controversial line Smith ever wrote, where he says that Hume, who again is this pretty much avowed religious skeptic, approaches nearly to the idea of a perfectly wise and virtuous man as perhaps the nature of frailty will permit. So the idea is that this paragon, the paragon of virtue, the person we should all strive to emulate is this religious skeptic. And this brought down a great deal of criticism on Smith. So he had spent his whole life trying to avoid controversy, playing his, I, I say, playing his cards close to the vest when it comes to religion. There are all kinds of comments about how he's very guarded in conversation when religion comes up. He's, I think, pretty inscrutable in his texts as to his religious beliefs. This is one reason why there's so much scholarly controversy, as you noted earlier. But here he comes out and says that Hume, this religious skeptic, um, lived and died well, as well as one could do. And he later said a very famous line. He said that this this, what he took to be a harmless sheet of paper on Hume brought on him 10 times more abuse than the very violent attack he'd made on the entire commercial system of Great Britain, meaning the wealth of nations. And so I spent an entire chapter of the book tracing what this abuse consists of. I think most Smith scholars are familiar with this line because of the very colorful image to the wealth of nations, but not many know exactly what did this 10 times more abuse entail. Um, and it was pretty abusive. I, I spent an entire chapter going through the, the attacks made on him from a variety of different corners and, and how everybody said that he had basically sullied his good name, that he had been this upstanding guy, a you know, professor of moral philosophy who, who, who was widely admired and respected. And now he, you know, had kind of linked himself with Hume in a way that sullied his good name. One thing in your book that gets a bit pushed into the background is that Hume and Smith were part of a broader group of intellectuals. They gathered sometimes weekly in several clubs and had, had meetings, um, discussions, the poker club, the most famous one. And of course, you your focus is Smith and Hume and you don't want to write a book of a thousand pages for general audience and you have to restrict your study yet there, there seems to be um the, the shortcoming that there this was like the this scottish enlightenment was rather broad group not just two people that influenced each other intellectually personally i mean there was you, you named a few already francis hutchison or adam ferguson or possibly the most important person henry hume lord kames who was actually distantly related to to david hume i think um, but more important, he was the mentor of, of Hume and he was also the mentor and, and promoter of, of Adam Smith. He was older than both of them, but he outlived David Hume and he, he, he published quite a lot, um, also touching more philosophy and economics. So how, how can you be certain that Adam Smith and, and David Hume's friendship was, was something special even within this group of friends? And this is the point you make. They were best friends and now to, to push you a bit on this. It is reported at least that David Hume said about Lord Kames that he was, and I quote, the best friend I ever possessed. And Adam Smith also is reported to have said about him that he was the master of us all. So um, how do we actually know that this, or how do you know that this was a special friendship between the two and not a, a friendship between a broader group or that actually Hume was best friends with somebody else from this 
huge group. So first of all, I, I think the, the line you quote there from, from Hume about the best friend I ever possessed, I believe this comes before he's even met Smith. I'd have to go back and double check, but I'm, I'm 90% sure that's true. It's also reported. I don't think it's a direct quote. I think it's somebody reported that Hume said that, okay. if I remember okay. correctly. But I also don't remember where I got it from. <laughs> okay. So I believe that that comes from before before they met. So just in terms of evidence, you know, the, they both, by the end of their lives, they address their letters to each other, my dearest friend, and they don't address their letters to anyone else like that. So that that, that seems to be you know, pretty conclusive evidence just in that. I, you know, I also think the story I just told about Hume's death where, you know, he allows Smith to complete his autobiography. I mean, it doesn't get much more trusting than that. This was going to be, he, he had stipulated that this was going to be the preface to his future editions of his collected works. And he says, sure, Smith, go ahead and finish it. Do whatever you see, think fit. I mean, that's really quite a lot of trust. The fact that Smith took the time and risked the, the censure that he ended up getting to do it. I mean, all of these, uh, to me, are indications that they consider each other their closest friends. I take your broader point, and, and that's fair enough, that, of course, a focus on just two thinkers is going to leave others out or, or kind of downplay others. I do include them in the book from time to time, but you don't, by the nature of the book, it doesn't give them the weight you would if you were just trying to give an overall picture of the Scottish Enlightenment, or even an overall picture on, let's say, Smith's influences, right? I, I, I focus a lot more on the, the Hume Smith connection than on others. I guess there are, I would say there are a number of justifications for it. First, I think there's just, there's, it, it's useful to pair almost any two thinkers together. It, it would be interesting to have a work on Smith and Hutchison. It would be work, interesting to have a work on Smith and Montesquieu. I, I certainly hope there's interest in having a work on Smith and Jean-Jacques Rousseau because, because I wrote that work. That My first book was on Smith and Rousseau. I, I more recently edited a um, a volume or co-edited a volume of essays on Smith and Rousseau. So I think pairing almost any two thinkers can sometimes shed light on a feature of someone's thought that you might not otherwise get. And you know, when we as we as a scholarly community compile these, we get a fuller, richer view of these thinkers than we might otherwise have. So as Smith would surely point out, it's the division of labor, right? We specialize and and you know we put them all together and and get a fuller view. As you say, I, I think there's a special kind of justification for doing this with human Smith, both because they were such close personal friends, right? So that, especially given that I'm trying to reach a broader audience, there's um, their, their personal friendship lends color and interest to the story, where if you're going to tell a story about the personal relationship between Smith and Montesquieu or Smith and Rousseau, or even Smith and Hutchison, who was his teacher, is going to be a much shorter book, right? That there's not a 25-year friendship or 27-year friendship to to bring to the story. And finally, and I think most importantly, I do think, I, and I would argue that Hume is almost certainly the single greatest influence on Smith's thought. If I'm trying to think of who the, the kind of runners up would be, I guess I'd say Hutchison or, or maybe the Stoics. But I think, you know, I, I, I think Hume is in front by a good, good ways. And so a focus on those two in particular seems to me to have special interest and special need, particularly because, I mean, it's really striking that no one had written this book before me. I almost couldn't believe that no one had, had written, when you have two thinkers of this stature, Hume is widely seen as the greatest or at least one of the greatest philosophers ever to write in English. And Smith is Smith, right? He, he's history's most famous theorist of commercial society. The fact that they're best friends for most of their adult lives and no one has written a book on the two of them is is 
really surprising in a way. Although I have to add that even though they might have been best friends or they probably were best friends, they barely wrote each other. As you said, they, they weren't the best in keeping up their correspondence. And they also barely saw each other when they barely lived in the same city. I mean, when, when Smith was visiting Edinburgh, he would usually stay at Hume's place. But um, they barely saw each other. And actually, as you wrote in your book, I think it was the three years before the before Hume's death, they basically lost touch as far as the evidence we have suggests. So it was it was not that they would meet on a daily basis and exchange views all the time. It was rather more limited. No, that's absolutely right. That you know, if you add up the amount of time they spent living in the same city, it's not much. I, I, I haven't added it, but it would be maybe a couple of years total. Um, a lot of the time. Hume is in Edinburgh, Smith is in Glasgow, and Smith would, I think, make the trip fairly regularly, both to see Hume and to participate in the Select Society, the poker club, which you mentioned earlier, and so on. So I, I do think they probably saw each other on a reasonably regular basis for, for much of their life, aside from this time, as you say, this kind of three-year period when Smith was in London, seeing finishing up the, the Wealth of Nations. But no, it's not that they live, you know, down the street and they, you know, spend all their time together. It is a much more friendship from a distance, which makes it all the more uh, sad from my perspective that they weren't better correspondents. You would think not living in the same city would make, uh, you know, make the correspondence between them all the richer, but they're just too infrequent correspondents to make that, make that worthwhile. Let's zoom out a bit. And the, the big topics or one of the big topics of your book is friendship. So I have a rather general question. How how important do you think are social relationships in science or among scientists? Are they necessary or helpful to have a fruitful exchange or a good debate? And then how much focus should historians of political or economic thought put on, on, on social relationships of the persons they are investigating? Um, wow, that's a huge question, and it's hard to answer in a global way. I mean, I think it just depends on from your experience the person. On this, that, in this book, maybe right. I mean, so there, I, I just think there are some thinkers who who seem to have done their work kind of you know in a closet on their own. I think of someone like Spinoza, right? There are lots of others who friendship does seem to have been a big part of their their life and their thought. I think it's particularly. I, I can't speak to kind of non-philosopher economists, but I, uh, among the philosophers, basically none of the canonical philosophers were married. It's a very striking and unusual thing that I, I can't account for, but almost none of the big names in the history of philosophy were married. And I think that makes friendship probably more important to them. I mean, insofar as there's just some human need for, for connection with others, that friendship be, ends up being more central in the lives of, of many philosophers because they're not married, they don't have family, they don't have children. And that's true in Human Smith's case, right? They, they both grew up fatherless, they both were lifelong bachelors, and so their friendships with each other and, and of course, with others were the some of the closest relationships that they had, I'd say, in addition to particularly Smith's with his mother. Smith was very close to his mother, who, who lived very long, and, and so he, he was close with her till his, his old age as well. I do think it's, you know, there are very few books on these types of things on philosophic friendships. Um, I speculate in, in my book, in my introduction, that 
partly this is just because it's hard to bring to life to find a lot of sustained interest in a friendship where, you know, people get along and then, well, there's, where's the conflict? Where's the drama? Where there are lots of books about philosophical clashes. You, you, Wittgenstein's Poker is the most obvious one, the number one bestseller, and there have been a bunch in the wake of that one as well. And you can see there's there's drama in the conflict and you can see the clash of ideas and and it's easier to it's easy to see how a, a book about a philosophical clash could be more easily made uh, accessible and entertaining. But you know, I do think friendship has often played a pretty key role in philosophy and the philosophic life. This is something that Plato and Aristotle said thousands of years ago, that, that the philosophic life is a life centered on friendship with other philosophers. And so, you know, I, I would like to see more of those, more, more books on philosophic friendships and how that friendship shaped the, the you know, respective thinkers' ideas. Okay, let's turn to the friendship of, of Hume and Smith in particular for possibly last time. In your subtitle, you say that this friendship shaped modern thought. And I was actually wondering how you can prove something like that, because if we make the counterfactual that Smith and Hume, well, they, they were running in the same circles, but maybe they lived in different cities and they known each other only fleetingly and never became close friends, but they would have still read their um, each other's works, of course. So how would that have affected their lives or their own thoughts differently and would that have shaped modern thought differently is that i mean because what you're basically claiming with the subtitle i know it's a subtitle but that this is a friendship that shaped modern thought so the question is had this friendship never taken place would would modern thought be different so you can't see i'm smiling right now i didn't choose a subtitle my <laughs> yeah, editor chose a subtitle <laughs> and i i pushed back for exactly okay. that reason I, well i guess the, the reason i pushed back was i said you know, I don't spend that much time in the book talking about how the, either their friendship or even their ideas shape modern thought. It's a study of them, their lives, their ideas, but not really the impact that their ideas had on later thought. Um, so my original subtitle was just, I, I believe it was just The Friendship and Philosophy of David Hume and Adam Smith. So very straightforward, but my editor thought, especially aiming at a, a more general audience that this would be sexier and catchier and, and whatever. So I, I, I've had several uh, reviews of the book kind of bring up the subtitle and I always send it to my editor and say, see, it's your <laughs> fault. You know, but you, you take the blame for that one. I mean, he does. He's very good, good sport about it. He does take the blame. The re I'll say though, the, the reason I consented to use it, despite the fact that it wasn't my, my first choice. I mean, I think the simplest case is that their friendship undoubtedly shaped Smith's thought and Smith's thought, undoubtedly shape modern thought. And so I, I do think, you know, I don't know that his the impact of Hume would have been quite the same had he not known Hume personally. I don't know if he Hume would have been as central to especially the theory of moral sentiments, but his Smith's thought in general, um, if it was just a book he had picked up and read and not somebody he had known. I also think that the episode that we talked about a few minutes ago where, where Smith publishes the third work under his name, the, the letter to Strand, you know, shed some really, I think, important light on Smith's broader thinking and, and project that you certainly wouldn't have gotten without their friendship. So that, that, you know, when pressed, that would be my justification that their friendship shaped Smith's thought and Smith's thought shaped modern thought. But yeah, it, it wasn't my choice. Okay. Yeah. That's why I said it's just a subtitle, but I, I thought about that. This might not be your choice. Yeah. But um, two quick last questions on the book. So from reading your book, it seems to me that you're fond of both Smith and Hume, but, uh, do you favor one of them? 
You know, it's funny. I've had many people oh. ask me that, um, <laughs> in, in, you know, both scholars and non-scholars say, well, oh, who's your favorite? I, and, and I've had, almost, I'd say, almost equal pe- number of people say, oh, you seem to favor Hume, you seem to favor Smith. I confess I didn't think in those terms while I was writing it. I can really see if you're writing a book on a philosophical clash, how you would end up feeling the need to take sides, right? You're writing a book on the Hume-Rousseau quarrel. Well, you know, I would side with Hume in there, but, the, you know, you, you would tend to take sides. When they really get along, I, I don't, I, I guess I didn't ever see a need to, to take sides between them. I will say that, you know, on the biggest questions that separate the two, I guess I tend to side with Smith over Hume, especially on the, the dialogue controversy, the controversy over whether Smith should have published Hume's dialogues considered concerning natural religion posthumously. Almost everybody blames Smith for this episode, and I've laid the blame on Hume. So I guess empirically speaking, I side with Smith on, on some questions. I, I guess I'm more sympathetic with Hume, to be frank, when it comes to religion and religious skepticism. I think, you know, Hume is kind of more forthright and, and radical in a way that I find refreshing and, and fun, even. Um, he's a much funnier person, much funnier writer than Smith is. So I think there are areas in which I agree with both of them or kind of sympathize with, with each of them more. Um, but no, I guess I didn't set out to say, you know, Hume's better than Smith or Smith's better than Hume. Full disclosure, I wrote a review of your book for the Adam Smith Review, which still has to be published. And at the end, I think I write something that it seems to me that you favored Smith a little bit, which of course for the readers of the Adam Smith Review, this might be uh, an advantage, but yeah. Okay. That, that's what I wrote. And uh, my, my second quick question is, now you've written a, my, my, one could call it popular science book because you're going for a broader audience, if, if I may say, um, take this sure. term for the book. Um, so, and you are greatly familiar with the lives of, and works of Hume and Smith. Um, have you at any point thought about writing a fictionalized book, like a novel based on their lives? Sometimes scholars do that. Do you, is that something you would think about? Wow, no, I, I, I don't think I would excel at, <laughs> at that. I, I really enjoyed writing for a, a general audience. It's in some ways hard. It's, it's, you almost have to check the scholarly instincts that you develop over decades of, you know, every time I make a certain claim where, you know, Smith thinks this, I, I make this claim, and then I immediately think to myself, well, the, scholar A is going to say this and scholar B is going to say that and I need to respond to each of these points in a footnote and, and you really have to check yourself and, and just let your statement stand and, and you know, there, there are, it is difficult in a way, um, in addition to just, you know, working on the language and making it flow and trying to tell stories and, and include funny bits and the like. Um, th- there is a lot of work that goes into it. I really enjoyed it, but no, I think fiction would be a, too, a step too far for me. I don't know that I have the, <laughs> the skills or the wherewithal to, to go that far. So let's turn away from the book a bit. Um, you've written recently also on the topic of Smith and economic inequality, of course, a topic that is very present in the economics discourse and in the public discourse these days. I want to spend a little bit of time on this topic as well. So how do you think that Smith's theory can actually add to the current debate on economic inequality? So I'll say I came to this topic almost by accident. I was asked by a, a friend to, to contribute an article in a conference that, that she told me was going to be on Smith and inequality. And my first reaction was, well, does Smith even 
talk about inequality? Does he worry about inequality? It turned out that either she misspoke or I misheard because the conference was in fact just on Smith and kind of the downsides of capitalism, which is now a pretty common thing for, for scholars to talk about. But it, it, it struck me when I, while I was thinking of what I would say about, a, about Smith and inequality, if that was the if that had been the theme of the conference, it struck me that there is at least an implicit criticism of inequality, mostly in the theory of moral sentiments. So he obviously is concerned about poverty. He Much of his political economy is directed to combating poverty. He sees the, the wages of the laboring poor as the chief measuring stick of the wealth of nations, of, of how you measure how flourishing an economy is. So everybody, or almost all Smith scholars agree, left and right, that he's um, concerned about poverty, he, he's concerned to alleviate poverty. But then there's a question, well, what about inequality itself? That is to say, you know, solve the problem of poverty. Does he worry about the gap between what we might call the middle classes and the very wealthy? Does, does inequality itself cause any problems? And in the article, so this was an article in the American Political Science Review, I also wrote up a kind of more popularized version of this for The Atlantic. The, uh, what I argue is that his worries about inequality aren't the worries that we tend to have today. So when we worry about inequality, we worry that it's going to inhibit economic growth or social mobility, or that it's going to undermine democracy, political participation, uh, that it just runs afoul of some standard of, of justice or fairness. And I argue that none of those were Smith's chief concern. He didn't think that inequality would have any of those effects, but that the real problem with inequality for him is that it distorts our sympathies, meaning that we tend to, um, he says there's a kind of quirk of human nature where we have a propensity to sympathize more with joy than with sorrow or what we perceive to be joy than sorrow. And so we're more apt, more, it's easier for us to sympathize with the rich than the poor, to put it bluntly, and that this this has bad moral effects insofar as he says the rich generally aren't very admirable people <laughs> because they, they're sympathized with regardless of, of their actions. They don't have the same social pressures to behave well that the rest of us do. Um, and so it corrupts our morality to admire these unadmirable people. And that it also has downsides for happiness insofar as we, we sympathize with the rich. We, we wrongly, in Smith's view, think that they must be much happier because they're much richer. And this leads us to toil and struggle for ever more wealth, ever more um, material goods to better our condition, as Smith puts it, when he says that, in fact, happiness comes chiefly from tranquility, that we would be much happier if we didn't spend so much of our life working and toiling. And so I argue that this is all implicit. He doesn't speak in terms of inequality, but that this distortion of our sympathies that presupposes economic inequality, that, that springs from it, ends up having really big ramifications for his broader kind of social political thought. So the, the, the point is that he had a very different approach than what the discussions are about today. But do you think his insights or his theory can actually help push us forward in current debates? Or is that something that kind of outdated? Well, I mean, I think what he says is in large part true. <laughs> I don't know that it, it, it's uh, groundbreaking that, it, you know, it should shift the ground of the debate. I think it's more calls attention to something interesting and important about Smith than the, the this part of Smith would call attention to something that, you know, no one would think of. In some ways, I, you know, 
I think many th people would think, well, of course it's obvious that we sympathize, we pay more attention to the rich than the poor. Just look at our society, look at look how we live our lives. And so maybe the point is obvious now, but I do think it's, uh, you know, something interesting to, to note about Smith and something that's, you know, true that we, that we do tend to, you know, even if we don't always admire the wealthy as, in, you know, we, especially on the left, uh, th there's often criticisms of, of the rich, but we do tend to admire and pursue wealth itself in the way that Smith suggests is not always good for us and, and good for our society. So I think it's both a true point and an interesting point about Smith. Like I say, I don't know that it's going to, it should revolutionize our understanding of, of inequality today. No, but it's true that in, in the media and newspapers and on TV, there's much more reporting about the life of rich people than of poor people. And, um, well, if, if this is um, what they are looking for attention, then of course, to become rich is a way to, to get more attention. And possibly people do, I think that's actually true, um, allow rich people more, more things that they wouldn't allow their neighbors. I mean, Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, the, the most obvious, and I don't, yeah, I don't want to make it too political, but the most yeah. obvious example would be the, would be Trump, <laughs> the of course, of the United States, yes. what, 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 what he's getting away with, um, right. not politically, but also morally. And this is um, right. something he's just, and long has, right, even before he was president. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Point. If you write on something like Smith and in economic inequality, that automatically, I guess, because it's a trendy topic is interesting to a broader audience and you actually published an article about this in one of the top five journals in political science you had written i think another article in in, in one of these journals before my question now is how is it different to write for for such a top journal and and do you have any advice for this and of course i'm this is a podcast for the history of economic thought and in economics i don't think top five journals do publish many if any history of thought articles in the political science, the situation is not that bad for historians of political thought. But have you, do you have any advice to write for more general academic audience and maybe even to get into one of the most prestigious journals? Uh, so the, the better academic journals. Yeah. 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 Academic journals. Yeah. So, so the American political science review is I think the flagship journal of the discipline. And I've been fortunate to, to publish two articles in there. Part of it, I think, is making, I mean, I can speak to political science much better than I can to, yeah, to economics. I think, you know, as you suggest, the political theory is a bigger part of political science than economic theory or history of economic th thought is in economics, is my sense. It's still sometimes seen as marginalized in some departments, some uh, kind of areas more than others. But political theory is still reasonably central, seen as one of the four main subfields of political science. And within political theory, history of political thought is kind of one of the, the mainstays. Um, there, there are lots of other kinds of ways of doing political theory, but this is still a common one. And so basically, there's a shot there, right? The big discipline-wide journals are always going to publish some things in political theory. And the way I've been successful is trying to have them speak to bigger political concerns. So my first piece in the American Political Science Review was on, I sort of touched on a minute ago, Smith and happiness. So it was called, Does Bettering Our Condition Really Make Us Better Off? Adam Smith on Progress and Happiness. So the big question of, does economic growth lead to happier individuals. And then the second one, as you say, is on Smith and inequality. I think they both had 
two things going for them. One is simple name recognition on Smith's part, right? Everybody knows who Smith is, where if this had been, you know, Francis Hutchison on inequality, I I just don't think it would would have the same same kind of shot as it does. And then, as I say, trying to, to speak to broader concerns that someone who's not intrinsically interested in Smith might be interested in. People care about inequality. They care about, you know, happiness and progress and development and the like. Whereas even if it's Smith, right, if it's some small part of his lectures on jurisprudence or something, I, I think it, it would have had a, a harder shot. So I'd say those two things have helped me at least do that. Just, you know, always trying to write clearly and engage this guy, you know, all the things that you you do that, that make for good scholarship help. But frankly, I think there's a lot of luck involved. So I'll, I'll admit that my first APS article, I had submitted to, I think, two different journals before that, and they'd both been turned down. And I had the, you know, I guess the chutzpah to say, well, I'm going to send it to the, the leading journal, even though these other ones have turned it down. And it just, you know, I got reviewers who are friendlier to it and, and it ended up working out. So it's, you know, frankly, a lot of luck as well, um, at least in my case, I think. So, you know, I don't think there's any golden ticket where you, you know, you, you take this route and you're going to, you're guaranteed to get an AER or something like that. But, you know, that's, that's been my path at least. And while we are the topic of writing, and we already touched up on the topic, you, you wrote for the book we have discussed before for a general audience. You also wrote on um, Smith and inequality in uh, in the the Atlantic in American magazine, and we will put a link on our homepage to it. But how is it then different to write for a general audience? And this is something or general public. This is something more and we are more and more asked to do. And there's this um, what is the general impact of research in, in funding applications and of course it's always a plus if you can relate it somehow to a more general for a more general audience or open it to a more general audience so what is your experience on this do you have any advice how to write for general public sure well, first of all that's interesting that you say that i think the in my experience in american universities this isn't something that's necessarily encouraged especially early in one's career that you want to sort of prove your scholarly uh, chops, your scholarly bona fides before um, attempting this. And so, um, you know, if I'm, I'm, if I was giving advice to an American scholar, I would say certainly don't attempt this before tenure. <laughs> um, once you're tenured, you can kind of do what you want. And, and so that's what I did. I was just kind of, I, I like doing, you know, real scholarship that, that speaks to, to other scholars and, and doesn't attempt to reach another a broader audience as well. But, you know, at, at some point one feels like, well, I, I'd like some more than 10 people <laughs> to read whatever, whatever it is that I'm writing right now. And so th- that's what led me to, I guess, so the, the piece in the Atlantic that you, you mentioned, I had written the, the piece on Smith and inequality in the American Political Science Review and an editor at the Atlantic happened upon it and reached out to me and said, would you write up a much shorter and more popularized version of this for us? And I said, sure. And it took me a day or two to do. It wasn't that hard. And then... I got more reaction to that one little piece in the Atlantic than everything else I had written in my life, in two books and, and APS articles and everything else. And so that, that kind of really struck me as, wow, you can, there, there is an interest and a, almost a hunger for this type of thing in the broader public that you, um, I w- wouldn't have necessarily expected going in. And so I did that with the book, with the, the Hume-Smith book. I'm doing it with my next book, which is uh, – moving across the Atlantic to the American founding. But I, I'm doing that with this book as well. I, I really enjoy doing it. It's, as I said before, that there's a certain 
you have to push against your own scholarly instincts and, and leave out things that you would like to put in to kind of in conversation with other scholars, just because you can't weigh it, <laughs> weigh it down too much if you expect uh, a non-academic to get through it. I think telling stories helps. So it's not just about ideas, but also about people's lives and interactions and um, can how they interact with their society, I think can sustain interest. It really helps to have, you know, in, in my book, it really helps to have Hume. Hume's funny. And so it really helps to have the moments of humor that you get through Hume's letters and and kind of the stories about his life, the, his irreligion. There are, there are all kinds of funny stories about Hume. And that, I think, helps to move it along. But just I, I think the, the key thing is, you know, as Smith would tell you, sympathy, right? You have to think as you're approaching the project what you would be interested in if you were not yourself, right? If you were a non-academic, if you weren't intrinsically interested in Smith and Rousseau in, in this case. And, you know, what about them might pique your interest? Um, you have to try to write in a way that is surely at least accessible, right, jargon-free, but also try. I try to keep the narrative kind of humming along at a good clip rather than getting too bogged down in too many details. And in some cases, this is sad. There are things I had to leave out. So I wrote a couple of sort of scholarly follow-up articles on on things that I wasn't able to include in the book that just seemed to, to weigh it down too much. So after Smith publishes the theory of moral sentiments, as we've already said earlier in our, our discussion, Hume wrote a very funny letter to him, personal letter, then wrote a review in an anonymous review in a, uh, a journal. He also then wrote yet another letter to Smith where he says, okay, here I have one problem with what you say. And he, the, the humor Smith scholars will recognize this, that he says, you know, basically you, you, you say that sympathy is always pleasurable, that mutual sympathy is always pleasurable. But if that were true, a hospital would be a more entertaining place than a ball. That is to say, we don't enjoy all um, experiences of sympathy equally. And I thought Smith's rejoinder to this is interesting. And, and so I, I ended up writing an article that's also coming out in the Adam Smith review, you know, someday <laughs> down the, <laughs> down the road on this point, but it was just, it was too much to include in this book. So I had to leave it out and I was sad to leave it out, but I thought, well, I'll just, I'll lop it off and, and, you know, pursue this in another venue. So you do have to, to check those kinds of impulses to go down to the bottom of every, every rabbit hole that you find. Yeah, I, as I say, I've really enjoyed it. I plan to continue doing it at least for for the near future because I, I find both the the reception is gratifying, but also the process is really fun to to work on honing your writing, to to work on telling a, a good story. Yeah, I've been enjoying it. Again, my advice, if you're at least an ac American academic, is hold off till tenure <laughs> before you do try it. That's a great way to end this interview. Thank you so much, Dennis, for being a guest on Cetus Never Peribus. It was much fun to talk to you. Thanks again. I, I appreciate the invitation and, and I had fun too. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode enough to come back for more. The featured music is called Knowing Nothing by Midair Machine and our intro features Paul Krugman at his Nobel Prize banquet speech in 2008. Thank you to Noble Media AB for giving us the permission to use the audio. Check out our website, cetrusneverparabus.net, for more information. Follow us on Twitter, cetrusnparabus, and listen to more episodes on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.